Good morning to all of you here in the worship center, also to all watching now or later on screen. To all of our visitors, let me add my welcome to the ones uh, already given. And if you have time after the service, I would love uh, to meet you, to chat with you. Uh, if I'm not available, anyone with a name tag here can answer any questions uh, that you might have. Good cookies, good coffee uh, in the back. So uh, we would love to spend some time with you after the service. Uh, for the visitors, my name is Steve Winkle, and I'm the Director of Community Connections and Outreach here at Ivanish Church. And occasionally, it is my privilege uh, to preach the morning message, usually uh, with lots of time to prepare. Those chuckling can tell you a fun story. Um, several months ago, uh, Brandon Hahn, our pastor, our primary preacher, sensed God's nudge to preach through the book of Luke, a series he started a few weeks ago, and we will continue that series this morning. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44, which you will find on page 835, I believe, in your pew Bible. And as you are finding the passage, let's review some basic uh, kind of background info. Scholars call the first three books of the New Testament the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the start of that word, syn, S-Y-N, uh, like, like synthesis and in sync, uh, means together. And optic, obviously, is a visual word. And they use that term synoptic because uh, those three gospels really see the life and ministry and kind of the order uh, in a very similar fashion. Both Matthew and Luke probably had Mark's gospel with them. If it wasn't in, right in front of, front of them, they had access to Mark's gospel probably when they wrote theirs. And um, Mark's gospel was based on the teachings of Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples. And so we get this beautiful trio of very similar accounts to start uh, our New Testament. Uh, Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and together the book of Luke and the book of Acts comprise more than 25% of the entire New Testament, making Luke the most prolific uh, of the New Testament authors. He's a physician by trade, and most scholars agree that he is a Gentile, making, making him the only non-Jewish author in the New Testament. And his original audience is primarily Gentile, as are most of his, his readers, like us today. From the beginning, God had in mind both Jews and Gentiles for his kingdom. And in his divine providence, God inspired Luke to write all that he did, including our text this morning. And for us to read and ponder more deeply his truth from Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. Then he went down to Capernaum, this is Jesus, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the house of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked 
Jesus to help her. So he bent over and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. And sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week... Uh, for those of you uh, who were here or watched online, we learned that all did not go well for Jesus in Nazareth, where he grew up. And at the beginning of our text, we learned that Jesus travels from there to Capernaum, a city about 30 miles away, likely closer to 40 miles on foot for any hiking enthusiasts headed for the Holy Land anytime soon. Uh, do a search on the Jesus Trail and you may hike a very similar path uh, to what Jesus hiked long ago. At the end of the passage, we learn that the townspeople want Jesus to stay with them, but he responds, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. And it's in the word also that we realize that this is a kingdom of God passage, and that what he says and does here, he must replicate elsewhere. So let's look specifically at three kingdom pieces in this passage. In Jesus, we see three aspects of the coming kingdom of God. Authoritative teaching, casting out demons, and healing. Do any of these characteristics make you think about any of the great kingdoms or kings throughout history? Great teaching, supernatural encounters with demons, and miraculous healing? It's clear that there is power in the kingdom of God that Jesus references here, but it's not military power or land acquisition or political strategy or economic growth or any of the other earthly keys to a powerful kingdom. But what is it about? Among other things, it's about truth and freedom and healing and much more. Early on in our text, we learned that on the Sabbath, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Have you ever amazed anyone and it really did not feel like a compliment? Several years ago, let's go with 20 or so, I was a senior at Calvin Christian High School across the street. <laughs> I was going for a laugh, but if you could have paused briefly, I would have uh, enjoyed that even more. I think if I would do the math correctly, it was actually 30, 12 years ago uh, <laughs> that I was a senior at Calvin Christian. And exam time was approaching. Sound familiar, students? I was taking what was then the toughest math class. Senior math was the title. Some of you know that. Only because I had learned that if I ended up at Calvin College, which was, which was likely, I would never again have to take another math class because this high school class would get me the valued college math exemption. Unfortunately, as the end of the year approached, I learned that I not only had to finish the course, but I needed to get a certain grade in the course to earn the exemption. And I, I think it was a B minus. 
And let's just say my lack of motivation had me hovering around that B minus standard, putting a little pressure on the exam. Not wanting to waste an entire year of a class that I didn't really enjoy. I was always more of the reader, writer guy, less the math person, unless it was batting averages and completion percentages. Um, so I did something radical, radical before the exam, something I had failed to do pretty much the entire year, and you can probably guess what that radical step that I took was. I took the time and energy to study. And it was amazing. I took Mr. Milkamp's review sheet home. Yes, I took something from math class home. Uh, didn't happen very often. I looked up everything he highlighted. I made the corrections on all my B minus tests and quizzes. I asked the smarty pants math people to fill in the brain blanks that remained. And for the first time all year, I had more than a hazy general, I sort of understand this mostly perspective. And for the first time all year, I entered the classroom with calm confidence. And while I took the exam, I had lots of those aha moments that all my classmates who studied got all the time while taking tests. And I left the room with a sense that I, that I had done very well. The next day, uh, and this is the amazement that did not feel like a compliment, I saw Mr. Milkamp across the hallway, not much traffic uh, on exam days, and I said, hey, Mr. Milkamp, how did I do on the exam? He looked at me, paused briefly, and said, Winkle, did you cheat? <laughs> Without missing a beat, because I sort of deserved that, uh, I responded, no, I studied. And honestly, the look on his face, as he tried to fathom that I studied, was far more amazed and confused than if I had admitted to cheating. In short, his amazement at my A on his exam directly correlated to his very, very low expectations. His bar for me was very, very low. And from there, cheating seemed a more likely possibility than studying. When Jesus teaches with authority, the people in Capernaum are amazed. And at least some of that amazement likely comes from the low expectations they had from previous teachers. The teachers of the law generally get pretty low reviews in scripture, and it seems the local synagogue teachers did not create very high expectations among their listeners. And the fact that God's promises did not seem to be coming true contributed to the attitude they brought to this first encounter with Jesus. But now, this Nazarene teaches them with depth and insight that they had never heard before. Weaving stories and commands and prophecies and poems together in such a way that they could sense God's truth with clarity they had never experienced before. What they could not yet fathom is that not only did Jesus understand the word of God perfectly because he was fully God, but also that all the words that Jesus spoke were the actual words of God. Jesus is fully God and fully human. Remember at the beginning of this chapter when Jesus was tempted by the devil? For one of the temptations, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. And Jesus responds, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
Yes, authority is a big deal in this passage, and Jesus clearly did not want or need any authority that the devil had to offer because Jesus was and is God himself. And even though the synagogue crowd in Capernaum could not grasp the reality of Jesus' full identity, they could sense the difference, enough of the difference, in a way that he taught to be amazed. From there, the amazement bar keeps getting higher and higher as Jesus completes two very specific miracles, both of which he then replicates multiple times. Before we explore those miracles in more detail, let's ponder this from C.S. Lewis. Lewis writes, each miracle writes for us in small letters, something that God has already written or will write in letters almost too large to be noticed across the whole canvas of nature. They focus at a particular point, either God's actual or his future operations on the universe. When they reproduce operations we have already seen on the large scale, they are miracles of the old creation. When they focus those which are still to come, they are miracles of the new. So in effect, Lewis says there are two kinds of miracles. You can categorize, you can divide all the miracles that Jesus does into two categories. Old creation miracles and new creation miracles, both of which exhibit the truth of God's kingdom. Some miracles accomplish supernaturally what already happens in nature. These are the old creation miracles. For example, every storm in human history has had a beginning, a middle, and an end. But when Jesus calms the storm, he does in an instant what would have happened over time. In our text today, the fever of Peter's mother-in-law likely would have subsided over time. But Jesus cures whatever was causing the fever in an instant. We'll look at that one more in a few minutes. The first miracle in our text, however, involves the casting out of a demon, something that doesn't happen on its own over time. So this is an example of a new creation miracle. But what do we do on Sunday morning in Granville, Michigan, in a Christian Reformed church of all places, with this demonic encounter. Let's begin with some more wisdom from C.S. Lewis. In his preface to the Screwtape Letters, he writes this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race uh, can fall about the, our race can fall about the, about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. My first teaching job out of college was to four missionary kids in the Philippines. And I returned 10 years later for a three-year stint to develop youth ministry in the Christian Reformed Church throughout the country. On paper, the Philippines is the only Christian nation in South Asia, but much of the population is only nominally Roman Catholic, which leads to strange combinations with animistic beliefs that predate the arrival of the Spanish explorers. Broadly defined, animism is the belief in a very active spirit world in which inanimate objects have living souls. So in many less developed places in the country, people might attend their local church on Sunday, make an offering to the spirit of the volcano during the week, and avoid the evil spirit tree at all costs on the way to the market. I will always remember one distinctive day my four students came to my house for, us, uh, for school back in 1985, still wide-eyed from the night before. 
Their parents were gone for the evening, and their Filipino friend Ruth, whose family was known in the neighborhood for some questionable spiritual activities, uh, was over for a visit. When, with no uh, clue, she fell back on a couch, began babbling in tongue they could not understand, and all the doors in the house slammed shut as the lights throughout the house began flickering. And that was precisely when Reverend Bilversloos, dad, pulled up in his Jeep, wondering how his house had turned into a giant strobe light. He ran up to the house, and as he grabbed the door handle, the unlocked door wouldn't open. And he later said, I felt evil like I had never felt evil before. But his next instinct was very good when he said aloud, whatever you are, in the name of Jesus, get out of my house. And the door opened, and the lights came on. And as he ran into his wide-eyed kids, Ruth slumped on the couch, and all was quiet and still and well. If you go back to the quote, the devil is active in more noticeable ways in Filipino culture. And many people there feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And too often in that beautiful culture, the devil wins, at least until the name of Jesus is uttered and then the demons flee. But as Lewis points out, the devil also wins too often when people don't believe that demons really exist. So guess how he typically works in most Western cultures, including the US. In the Screwtape letters, Lewis creates a fictional senior demon named Screwtape, who writes 31 letters to Wormwood, a junior demon assigned to a new Christian. And he gives him this advice. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping your patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, uh, he therefore cannot believe in you. So Satan wants us either obsessed with him or oblivious to him. And he does great damage to the kingdom either way. So what's a better option? Pastor Dave Beelan from Madison Square used to tell the story of a newlywed couple. And as the husband was shaving in the morning, his wife was in the shower, the man heard his bride talking aloud, but not to him. And as he listened more closely, the words sounded familiar because they were from Ephesians 6, the armor of God passage, the belt of truth around her waist, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and more. Every day, rather than being obsessed or oblivious, she would put on the armor of God in the morning and then go to war against the devil and all of his schemes. Do you remember why Paul tells the Ephesians to put on God's armor? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You may never have the opportunity to do what Bill Versluis did in the Philippines and command a demon in Jesus' name to exit. But with an increasing awareness of the devil and his ways, along with a willingness to fight, 
Maybe we can bring more light to the darkness in a friend or a family member's life this week. Maybe we can take more seriously God's, God's call for us to be peacemakers and step into a conflict that reeks of the devil's divide and conquer strategy. Maybe putting on God's armor will help us to recognize more clearly the subtle deceptions and distractions the devil uses to take our eyes off Jesus. Knowing the more oblivious we are to him, the more he wins. Finally, now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Jesus' teaching had the authority that brought amazement. Then Jesus shows he has authority over demonic forces, bringing more amazement. And now he shows he has the authority over human sickness. When it says that Jesus rebuked the fever, it almost sounds like something evil is behind the illness. To that, commentator Joel Green says this, this is not to interpret illness as necessarily a consequence of demonic possession. Rather, it is to recognize Luke's view that people who have a demon and those who suffer from illness are both oppressed by diabolic forces and both in need of release. In short, demons were never supposed to happen. Illness was never supposed to happen. And the kingdom that's coming, neither will. Immediately, uh, Jesus provides the needed release to Peter's mother-in-law, to Simon's mother-in-law, as he had to the man with the demon. And more demons and illnesses get released at the end of this passage. Clearly, Jesus has the authority and power to heal. And I know that triggers hard questions for many of us here today. You could have just said the word, Lord, and the cancer, the Parkinson's, the paralysis, the depression, even the torn ACL would have left as quickly as her fever did back then. You have the power, you have the authority, and we would have been just as amazed as the people back then. Why her and not my mom or dad or husband or wife or son or daughter or friend? Or why not me? I will not insult you uh, this morning by trying to put a little Christian Band-Aid um, on your pain or a trivial answer to those hard questions. I do believe that God does still heal, but on this broken side of eternity where we can see only dimly, it's not always how we want or when we want. But oddly, that brings us to the gospel. The very good news that Jesus is not only teaching but also showing in this passage. If you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, this world is not your home. You are a citizen of the kingdom that is coming. One that Jesus shows is in some sense already here, but in another very real sense will not be complete until his return. And in that kingdom, what the people of Capernaum began to learn 2,000 years ago, we know more fully today. And Jesus gives us every reason to have very, very high expectations for his kingdom that is coming. And we will still be amazed. It's a kingdom where there is only truth. No deception, no lies, 
no slander. It's a kingdom where the devil has absolutely no power because he and his minions will be forever cast out. And it's a kingdom where there is no decay or division or disease and where we get to be reunited with those who have already been healed eternally. This is why Jesus could not stay in Capernaum. It's a message of the coming kingdom that he needed to spread far and wide then. And through Luke and the other gospel writers, a message that in the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to hear and tell and show today. Let's pray. Dear God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for the life that you lived, for the death that you died, for the victory that you won over sin and death and hell, ushering in your kingdom that is already uh, but not yet fully realized. God, help us to go into this day, into this week, in the assurance of our salvation, in the insurance, God, of the kingdom that is coming. And no matter what struggles we face and those whom we love are facing, God, that we may know uh, that you are the God who has power and authority uh, over anything uh, that, uh, that uh, comes uh, in our way and that ultimately in you is the victory. Uh, thank you, God, for the sunshine, for the beauty of your earth and for how you allow us to experience that in so many amazing ways. We love you, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.